Guidance and Answers outreach event, college and graduate students from the University of Hawaii gathered to hear Dr. Hugh Ross present scientific evidence for God. After presenting his case, the floor was open for questions from the audience. You're tuned to Evidence and Answers radio broadcast with your host, Pat Zucran. Pat is an author, teacher, and international speaker in the area of Christian apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith. Today, we will conclude the first night as we listen to the challenging questions that were asked and Dr. Ross answers. Remember, if you missed any part of this broadcast, head on over to our website, that's evidenceandanswers.org, and look up our 2023 Evidence and Answers Apologetics Conference. You can download it or listen online. Stars are like human beings. They're unstable when they're young. They're unstable when they're old. They're maximally stable when they're middle-aged. But the good thing about us human beings, our stability period is most of our lifespan. For stars, that's not the case. For the vast part of a star's uh, lifespan, it's way too unstable for advanced life. I mean, there's a reason why you only have microbes for the first three billion years of life history on Earth. The sun wouldn't permit any other kind of life form to exist. The oxygen is not there either. What the sun is doing when it's really young, it's got a huge amount of flaring activity, a huge amount of uh, particle radiation that would be sputtering away our atmosphere uh, and our ocean. And it's got a lot of ultraviolet and X-ray radiation. And you say, how much? Well, for the first half billion years of the sun's history, the deadly stuff is about 100,000 times more intense than it is today. And you say, well, how wide is the window where you've got an intensity that permits human beings to exist? It's about 100,000 years wide. And right now, we're about halfway through that window. So now, you can have trees existing earlier. You can have bison existing earlier. If you want humans with high technology civilization, where we have a large population of billions, you need an extraordinarily stable sun uh, with very little flaring activity and uh, only long wavelength ultraviolet radiation penetrating our atmosphere. So we're in that window right now. And also the sun gets progressively brighter as it gets older and older. And so that basically explains why the history of life on planet Earth must look exactly the way it is. Because what God does, you see this in Psalm 104, it's a property of all life to die off, but God recreates and renews the face of the Earth. So as the sun gets progressively brighter and brighter, God removes life forms from planet Earth that are relatively low in their efficiency of removing greenhouse gases from the atmosphere and replacing them with life forms that are a little bit more efficient at pulling greenhouse gases from the atmosphere. And right now on planet Earth, we have the life forms that are the most efficient at pulling greenhouse gases out of the atmosphere. And so the temperature of the surface of the Earth has remained uh, relatively constant throughout the past 3.8 billion years because of this carefully tuned removal of life and replacement of life. And you'll, uh, you'll see a chapter on the luminosity variation of the sun in improbable planet. And main, my main point is only a mind that knows the future physics of the sun, the earth, and the moon would know which life to remove and which new life to replace that old life with. And that's something my evolutionary biologists, professors that I know, have not studied. I basically challenge them saying, if you want to understand the history of life on planet Earth, you must bring solar astrophysics into the, into the solution. 
Adaros, thank you again for speaking. I feel like one argument I've heard is, um, although like your example of winning 150 California lottery tickets back to back with one ticket is very like improbable, it's not theoretically impossible. And because, you know, with like the size of the galaxy and whatnot, the infinite, there's like near infinite amount of like retries and whatnot, like theoretically it's possible that not by intelligent design, but by chance, we would have like stumbled upon to this like perfect combination. And I was just wondering like if you have a response as to like that. Okay, well that fine tuning uh, paper that's online, you know, reasons.org slash fine tuning, it's based on the presumption that there are 10 to the 24 planets in the universe. So we take into account the huge number of chances that the universe applies. Uh, and even then, you get those incredibly uh, improbable uh, probabilities. Now, I've been speaking on this subject since the early 1980s. But I remember in the 1980s telling audiences, eventually the evidence for fine-tuning will become so pervasive and so overwhelming that the atheists have nowhere else to go but to hypothesize that there's an infinite number of universes not just a universe with you know, a trillion, trillion stars and planets in it, but an infinite number of universes. And they also would say each universe is different from every other universe. And therefore, we have all these fine-tuned characteristics, not because of God, but because of pure chance. Now, what I write about in The Creator and the Cosmos, fourth edition, I quote Leonard Susskind. He used to identify himself as an atheist theoretical physicist. He now refers to himself as an agnostic. But he was the one who said years ago, we atheists have got to stop using the multiverse. It's an argument that explains everything. An argument that explains everything explains nothing. And it has to do with infinity. You know, I remember telling audiences back in the 1980s, if an atheist has to appeal to infinity, they've got nothing. And it's because infinity times infinity is infinity. Infinity to the infinity power is infinity. So if you've got an infinite number of universes that are all different from one another, you'll have an infinite number of planets identical to planet Earth. And if you've got an infinite number of planet Earths all filled with life forms on it, you're going to have an infinite variety of birch trees in an infinite number of universes. And birch trees have the property that they peel thin white pieces of bark. But if you've got an infinite variety of birch tree species, one of those species will peel thin white pieces of bark that are perfectly rectangular that measure eight and a half by 11 inches. And these pieces of thin white bark will fall on soils with random chemicals in them that'll make random markings on those pieces of birch bark, which will duplicate all the paragraphs, equations, diagrams, and photographs in every scientific paper that's ever been published, which means those millions of scientific research papers didn't come from the minds of scientists, the multiverse did it. And so that's what Leonard Susskind is pointing out. If you're going to appeal to the multiverse, you're in a philosophical trap. Thank you, Dr. Ross. I guess since we're just here, I wanted to uh, just ask a question, too. We were studying Colossians uh, a while back, and we, um, the verse about how God holds all things together. And it came up as we related that verse, since you're an astrophysicist, to the concept of dark matter, this yes. nebulous thing that holds all things together that we can't measure in the universe. And I was just wondering if you could comment on that about uh, dark matter and the possibility that it's God holding all things together. Right. What Colossians is basically telling us, God is performing three distinct kinds of miracles. He performs transcendent miracles, which are outside the laws of physics. 
like when Jesus walked on water, like when he created the universe, or when he rose bodily from the dead. Those are all miracles beyond the laws of physics. But notice they're only performed by uh, God himself. Humans can't pull that off. And then we have miracles described in the Bible, and they're the vast majority. These are miracles that take place within the laws of physics, but would never happen without some kind of intelligent agency. And then the third category of miracles is the one you see there in Colossians, where God is sustaining everything, holding everything together. I mean, there's another passage in the Bible where it tells us in the book of Job, if God were to withdraw his sustaining hand, all of us would breathe our last breath. Every life form on planet Earth would immediately die. Now, how we physicists look at that, uh, we see that the four fundamental forces of physics must be exquisitely fine-tuned. If they're not, you have no molecules. You have no atoms. All the molecules and atoms immediately fall apart. And, of course, there would be no life. And we can see that sustaining hand throughout all the laws of physics. Change the velocity of light a tiniest bit, and the light becomes impossible anytime, anywhere in the, the universe. It's something a lot of my peers are writing about, and it's something that's causing a lot of my atheist peers to say, hey, why is this incredible symmetry we see throughout all of physics sustained in such a marvelous way? And why are the equations of physics so beautiful and so elegant and so symmetrical? I mean, if you look at the men and women of science, where you see the highest number of believers is theoretical mathematics. 80% of theoretical mathematicians are believers. And it's because of the beauty and the elegance of the symmetry of the equations that describe physics that persuade them that's the case. So it's a huge part of that sustaining factor. It's a book I hope to write uh, before I pass from this world. It's a gorgeous beauty of these equations of physics. I was hoping to share that with you at the beginning of my talk, but it was my wife that said, no, better not try that. So. Hi, Dr. Ross. Yes. Um, so I, I get this question a number of times from people, and um, I was hoping if you could comment on it about like extraterrestrial life yes. and whether or not you know they exist, if their existence kind of contraindicates the Bible and kind of disproves the Bible, things like that. Good question. Christians have been debating that subject for 2,000 years. It's a theological debate, namely that people who read the Bible say, especially when you look at Job and uh, Psalms and the creation Psalms, it really seems like God really enjoys creating. Why would he stop at just one planet? And so Christians for thousands of years have speculated that God had created life, not just here on earth, but elsewhere in the universe. Then there's another band of theologians that say, yes, but when you look at the gospels, notice how frequently Jesus refused to perform miracles. He only performed those miracles which were essential to fulfilling the purpose for which he came. And so on that basis, they said, God is not going to perform you know, superfluous miracles. And they're arguing God only needs life on one planet to fulfill the reason for why he created the universe. So they would argue we're alone. And uh, that debate is still going on. And I can see good reasons for both sides of the debate. As an astronomer, I can tell you, though, everywhere we look beyond planet Earth, we only see conditions that are extremely hostile to the existence of advanced physical life. Earth really does seem to be alone. Important caveat, I've been on record since the 1980s. We will find the remains of life on virtually every solar system body. That's because life has been so prolific on planet Earth for so long 
that when meteors strike the Earth, the big ones, they export Earth's soil throughout the solar system. So, for example, I know three astronomers who wrote a paper, and they determined that the surface of the moon has 20,000 kilograms of Earth's soil for every 100 square kilometers of the uh, moon's surface. And I once spoke at NASA Houston to the uh, astronomers and uh, astronauts there saying, we need to go back to the moon because Earth's geology has destroyed the fossils of Earth's first life. We'll never find the fossils of Earth's first life here on planet Earth, but we will find them on the moon because the moon has virtually no geological activity. So we can go to the moon, find the fossils of Earth's first life, and determine who got the origin of life model right, the theists or the non-theists. And I closed my talk out at NASA Houston saying, last time I checked, theists and non-theists made up 100% of the U.S. taxpayer base. So let's go to the moon, and uh, NASA can take credit for settling the creation-evolution debate. Hi, thank you for speaking. My name is Nicole. I just had a really quick question. I, it was, um, why do we have this elaborate universe if it is just in it, us in it? Why do we have? This elaborate universe if we are the only people in it. Okay, why such a huge universe if we're the only people in it? Yeah, you'll get a quick answer to that and why the universe is the way it is. I'm actually going to be talking about that tomorrow evening. I'll explain to you. Or pardon me, no, I think it's going to be Saturday. Saturday I'll explain it to you. And the answer is that the total mass of the universe determines what elements you get. The universe begins with only one element in the periodic table, namely hydrogen. But the universe starts off infinitesimally small and nearly infinitely hot. But as it expands from the cosmic creation event, the universe gets cooler and cooler and cooler. It spends about 20 seconds in the range where hydrogen gets fused into helium. And so in the first three and a half minutes of the existence of the universe, about a quarter of the hydrogen is fused into helium. But how much gets fused into helium depends on the total mass of the universe. The greater the mass, the more time the universe spends in that nuclear fusion region. The less the mass, the more quickly it passes through that region. And so if the universe was the tiniest bit less massive, so little helium would be made during those first four minutes that future stars would be unable to fuse the hydrogen and helium into elements heavier than lithium. There'd be no carbon, there'd be no oxygen, there'd be no nitrogen, and no possibility for life. Make the universe the tiniest bit more massive, the future stars quickly convert all the primordial hydrogen and helium into elements heavier than manganese. And that means, again, you've got a universe with no carbon, no oxygen, no nitrogen, no phosphorus, and no possibility for life. That's one of three reasons why the universe must be exactly the mass that it is. How fine-tuned must it be? To within one part in a quadrillion, 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 quadrillion. If that's not the case, we wouldn't be here this evening. There wouldn't even be microbes around at any time in the history of the universe. It also tells me God so loved the human race that he didn't think it too expensive to make a universe with two trillion galaxies where every galaxy contains over 100 billion stars. Or he didn't think it uh, too expensive to spend 13.8 billion years carefully designing everything so that we could be here today. You know, as I tell audiences, God knows the name of every star. He can name 10 trillion stars after every human being has ever lived and not run out. 
So if he knows the name of every star, he knows your name. Thank you so much. And I just actually have one more question. Is fine-tuning possible again in the future? Is fine-tuning in, in the future possible? I believe it is. You know, one of the things that struck me when I looked at the different religions of the world, unique to Christianity, is that Christianity is a two-creation model, not a one-creation model. God creates his universe predominantly for the purpose of eradicating all the evil and suffering. And when that evil and suffering is eradicated, the universe that God spoke into existence, he'll speak it out of existence and replace it with a new creation, which is described in Revelation 21 and 22. And if you read those two chapters, it's clear it's a creation with no gravity, no electromagnetism, no thermodynamics. Probably not the weak and strong nuclear forces exist there either. And it's going to be completely different dimensions. It won't be the dimensions of length, width, height, and time anymore. But it'll be a realm that'll be fine-tuned just like our realm, but it's going to be fine-tuned in a different way. Just like the angelic realm is very different than our realm, but like our realm, it's exquisitely fine-tuned. I had a question about, it's what's more a geology question, but do you know how plate tectonics started and how the Pangea theory plays into the creation of the world? Uh, how did plate tectonics theory get started? Well, how did, like, how did that happen, and like, does the Pangea theory work with this? Does with what kind of theory work? Pangea, you know the oh, theory the Pangea of... theory work, yeah. yes, yes. All right, this is described in detail in an improbable planet, how we have a supercontinent cycle. The continents come together, they break apart, they come together, they break apart. The last time they came together was Pangea, a quarter of a billion years ago. All the continents were joined together as one and now they've been splitting apart. We have seven continents. Another quarter of a billion years from now, they'll all come back together again. And we can see in the past geological history of the Earth at least six supercontinent cycles. There may be more, but we can see the last six uh, where these continents have come together. And what I write about on Improbable Planet, the supercontinent cycle is essential for a planet to have advanced life on it. You don't need it if all you want are microbes. But if you want plants and animals, and especially human beings, we must be living in a supercontinent cycle. It's crucial to recycle the nutrients that advanced life needs. But you also want it to run slow enough that the tectonics doesn't disturb advanced life. I mean, we get earthquakes, we get volcanoes, you get some of them here in Hawaii, but it's not enough to make it impossible to have the city of Honolulu or to have the city of Hilo. So we can have our civilization and we can have the resources we need to our civilization because the plate tectonics is exactly at the right level. Not too intense, but sufficiently intense to provide us with all the resources that we need. And also we need an ice age cycle. One of the remarkable things about the ice age cycle, when the ice rapidly melts at the end of an ice age, it ignites volcanoes all around the world. That happens because that huge weight of ice, as it melts, it causes the continents to rebound. They've been gravitationally pushed down by the ice. When the ice melts, the continents pop back up and ignites volcanoes all around the world. What that does is it fertilizes all the great agricultural plains. Because as you're probably aware, volcanic soil is very nutrient rich. So every ice age we get, we get a refertilization event. I have a question here. I wonder that we always talk about the vastness of the universe, the bigness of it, and that yes. has sent us into study for hundreds of years. 
But you mentioned this a little bit earlier. I, I get this uh, sense that they say 13.8 or 14.6 billion years old or something along those lines. And even the extinction of the dinosaurs and the rise of Homo sapiens is you know, within the past 60 million years. But I kind of feel that that's, or from what I've understood, I kind of feel like that even that's not long enough. Even that's not big enough to produce life and to produce many life forms out there in the universe. Even that, we're always so enamored with how big it is. But I, something tells me, and you kind of mentioned this earlier, that there was you know, scientists before that said quadrillions of years old. So the question is, is that uh, wild to think? Like, well, there's... Oh, not it's, at it's, all. It's actually smaller than... Like, if you look at the numbers, I feel like it's still so not life-sustaining. It's still not enough time. There have been several papers published by my peers, none of them believers, making the point we must be alone as the only intelligent civilization in the universe. Why? Because we're here at the minimum time. It's impossible to bring advanced life into the universe any earlier than 13.79 billion years. And the universe is 13.79 billion years old. And so these astronomers have been saying, maybe advanced life after us, but not before us. And again, this is predicated. We astronomers can only look at the past. We can't look at the present, which means it's fruitless for us to actually find extraterrestrial intelligent life because we're forced to observe the past and we know that there isn't enough time for advanced life to happen any earlier than us. So in that respect, we are alone. Yeah. Well, that's also true. If you're going to have life elsewhere in the universe, it only can be there if God supernaturally intervenes. You probably have an article written about it, right? But what's like a book or something that I, because I really want to read into that to show, and especially go the direction of extraterrestrial discussion, because it actually comes a lot. Yeah, Lights in the Sky on Little Green Men. That's, that's the book we wrote. Yeah. Lights in the Sky on Little Green Men. Thanks, Dr. Russ. I actually met Stephen Hawking outside of Beckman Auditorium at Caltech. Well, maybe I was there with you. <laughs> I mean, he used to come to Caltech for a month every year. Oh, he did? Okay, yeah, so he's a regular it. visitor to Caltech. Wow. And uh, I was one of the few that could actually understand him when he could talk. Yeah, So right, I would translate right. from my friends. On his wheelchair. <laughs> what was interesting was he um, was uh, wheeled out of Beckman Auditorium, and it was just me and him. One of my life's regrets was I didn't evangelize to him at the time. That was one of my life's regrets, and he passed away. My question I want to ask you, and isn't the knockout punch against atheists a moral conscience? Because even Albert Einstein said he cannot explain moral conscience. You know, two plasmas cannot have a moral conscience. Right. Well, this happened to me in 2008. I was invited to uh, debate Victor Stenger, who, by the way, was a theoretical physicist here at the University of Hawaii and very lifelong committed atheist. And the debate took place at the uh, International Skeptic Society Conference. So it was 750 atheists from around the world. And, uh, but before the debate happened, the debate was the last event at the conference. But before that debate, they had five atheist physicists speak, each an hour-long message on why science proves there is no God. But they all ended their talk by saying, even though there is no God, we human beings of ultimate purpose and destiny. And it's like, that's a contradiction. If there is no God, if we're here as a result of the pure chance mutations and uh, natural selection, gene exchange, and epigenetics, then how can we have ultimate purpose and destiny? What I really appreciated about Victor Stenger, they gave him the last word in the, the debate we had. He looked out at the, all the audience and said, remember one thing, you are all cold 
nothing. You're no better off than a rock or a piece of dust. And I went up to afterwards and talked to Victor instead. You're the one honest atheist I've heard this, uh, this weekend. Because all these other atheists were insisting they had purpose, that there was value in their life. And Victor Stanger said, no, if we're really serious that there is no God, we don't have any purpose at all. So, so he was thinking uh, correctly. Can we give a, another hand for Dr. Ross? Thank you. has come to a close. Thank you for joining us here on Evidence and Answers Radio Broadcast. We hope you enjoyed today's show. If you would like Pat to speak at your church, Bible study, or even schedule an apologetics conference at your location, give him a call in Hawaii. That number is 483-0586. Or you may contact him through the Evidence and Answers website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. We have a wide variety of different topics that will make for an incredible conference series. Be sure to use our search engine for available resources. We have everything from atheism to Zen Buddhism, including articles and additional audio free to listen to or download. So be sure to share our website with those around you. To keep quality broadcasts like Pat's on the air, we rely on generous financial support from you, our listeners. For the opportunity to partner with us, head on over to our website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. And you may do so right there online. Evidence and Answers would like to thank one of our sponsors, the Honolulu Christian Church. If you don't have a home church and are looking for a great place to connect and grow in Christ, check out the Honolulu Christian Church. For service times, log on at honoluluchristian.org. Join us again next time on the air or online as we provide compelling reasons for faith in Christ. That's Evidence and Answers with Pat Zucran. Amen.